In our new series, Debut Discussions, we're asking debut authors to tell us their story, not only the story in the novel they wrote, but the journey they took to hold that book in their hands. On today's episode, we welcome Tracy Sierra. Tracy was born and raised in the Colorado mountains. She is an attorney who currently lives in New England in an antique colonial era home complete with its own secret room. Her debut novel, Night Watching, is out now. Welcome to Pop Fiction Women, Tracy. Thank you. We're so excited to have you. I'm excited to be here. And we gushed about your book before we <laughs> we started, and we will we will dive deep into that. But before we discuss night watching, we do with our debut authors like to go back in time because writers begin as readers, and we would love to hear your story of you as a reader. Sure. Yeah, I think I think all of us, like you said, are all huge readers. And I always was, you know, the kid reading under the covers late at night. And I was an English major and just have always loved to read, always had a book in my hand pretty much. And yeah, even as a kid, really loved scary stories. Oh, um, I love that. Was, yeah, it was kind of the one time I got in trouble as a kid. I was a really... As a lawyer, I'm a rule obeyer, generally speaking. <laughs> That's right. But the one time I would get in trouble as a kid is going for sleepovers and telling scary stories and then getting angry calls from oh, the parents the next amazing. night. And my mom's saying, you've got to stop telling people these stories. You're not going to get invited back. <laughs> so, but, you know, I'd pull from scary stories to tell in the dark and things like that, you know. so Okay, that makes oh. me very happy that you've been preparing for this book for your right. whole life, clearly. Right. <laughs> Any favorite series or books or authors or, or stories that you remember as a child or even later that left an impact on you? Yeah, you know, I think that's, it's funny, my UK publisher, they had us fill out a questionnaire and it said, favorite book of all time. And then in parentheses, they said, yes, only one. You can only put oh. one because, you know, every writer would say, well, let me give a list of 50 or 60 you know, books. <laughs> but certainly as a kid, I was just a really wide ranging reader. I kind of read absolutely everything. And yeah, I don't remember anything that was a standout aside from, you know, the scary stories to tell in the dark. I recently had my first short story published, and that was actually in, named, it's called The Burr, and it was based or inspired by partially a story I read as a kid called The Burr Woman. So certainly some of these stories kind of dig deep that you read as 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 a kid, but, you know, later on as an English major, just yeah. wall to wall, all the classics yeah. from all over the world. I tried to really read everything from, you know, British lit, love Russian, lit, obviously American lit. And, you know, did, I even did a course called The Story of the Stone, which is this massive epic book series from China. So, I mean, I just really am a yeah, very wide ranging read, reader. I feel like I've actually narrowed as an adult, you know, in that now I focus a lot more I'm a little bit more choosy. I think <laughs> you feel yeah. like you don't have as much time to read and <laughs> as, yeah. as you maybe did in school and things. So you kind of narrow it down a little more. So now I'm definitely more on scary stories and thrillers. Makes mm. sense. That makes sense. So mm -hmm. as I read in your bio, you are a lawyer, as Kate and I are, as so many of us, certainly that we tend to bring on this podcast, our lawyers. What kind of law did you practice? And at the same time, did you know you always wanted to write a novel. Yeah. yeah. You know, I think I went into law for a couple reasons. 
I knew I always wanted to be a writer, but I was definitely not one of these young people who has big ideas for stories. I really admire young people who do, but I did not. <laughs> that was not me. It took me a while to kind of grow into thinking kind of deeply and carefully about things and prioritizing writing. You know, I think too, as somebody who studies liberal arts, you kind of hit, I mean, I hit a certain point where I realized, you know, I have to support myself. <laughs> I have to have some kind of career here and yeah. yeah, being practical, you know, and so law seemed like the logical choice because there is so much writing in law. It's something I'm good at. <clears throat> and in law school, I really thought I was going to be a litigator. I Same. did civil litigation clinics, you know, volunteered getting TROs for temporary restraining orders for domestic violence survivors, asylum applications, worked with the U.S. Attorney's Office and white collar crime prosecution. And that taught me that I was not cut out emotionally to <laughs> be a litigator. I mean, I really, I, I have such admiration for the people who do that work. And certainly, boy, I, you know, the, the, the things that you saw doing those jobs, even the brief time that I did them, I mean, I'm not surprised so many lawyers are writers because yeah. there's, there's a lot of that experience within, you know, night watching, seeing the way that the legal system and authorities and just the world yeah. <laughs> treats women and, and, you know, and different groups. So I ended up going into corporate law because I liked that it was a lot more collegial. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you're working together. Everyone wants the deal to go through. That's so right. you're working a lot more together. So I liked that. But boy, I'll tell you those, I really admire folks who who are, are litigators who do that day-to-day -day work of, of stuff like, like you know, working with <laughs> DV survivors and things. It's, oh, it's very impressive, but I was yeah. not <laughs> emotionally cut out for that. It was, it, that's difficult work. Yeah. Well, you could just very... be a corporate litigator like me and then, you know, I don't, yeah. we don't even, I don't, it's, you know, we don't have any of that, but, but yeah, I, I, I think that it's really, it's, it's tough, but I think yeah. that my corporate brethren, like you are all are saying, they're like, but we do, we have a common goal and you guys are so yes. adversarial and it is, it, it is. is, ours is, it is exhausting since the point is always to be against one another and you guys right. get to say we have the same end result in mind. Right, right, for sure. The adversarial thing, I learned that conflict is difficult for me. Yeah. <laughs> basically. So. But so then you so you you go the corporate law route. And so at what point then did you think, well, I, I have this novel or I want to explore writing at the same time? Yeah, I mean, I think you know, again, in night watching is so much about being a, a mother. And for me, I was working in, you know, big law, right? I, it was insane hours, 90 hour work weeks, just nonstop. I did that all, even when I had my son. And it was, you know, I had a, I had a tough time with early motherhood. I have plenty of friends who kind of skated through. I struggled. <laughs> and, you know, yeah. And looking back too, you kind of realize, oh, I should have gotten myself more support. But of course, the catch 22 of being in that position is you don't recognize that you need it. Yeah. And so for me, working those hours, 
getting pregnant for the second time, having had the physical, mental challenges of early parenthood with my son. And it ended up being great timing. My husband's a doctor, so I had, you know, supported us through his residency. And that was eight years. years. It was not a short time. And that it it was perfect timing because I was like, this is great. I can step away from big law as, you know, you're stepping into, you know, your first job. And, you know, take that time to just not be at that sort of environment. And yeah, that was when I first started thinking about, you know, what I wanted to prioritize. I think a lot of reason I had gone into law, you know, I, I lost my mom when I was 25 and it was very much okay, it's on me now. I need to support and and be independent. But as I've gotten older and closer to her age, that shifted to, oh, I lost my mom when, you know, she was this age, this age, I better do what I want with my life. You know, every day is, is more precious. And so that caused that shift there, I think. And I thought seriously about writing, you know, right as I was leaving the firm, though it took a while to percolate because I still did have, you know, a newborn and a toddler and was right, <laughs> working right. still. So, but yeah, that, that kind of allowed me the mental bandwidth to kind of think about it. It's so funny. We were just, I was just, we were talking to another author and for me, it was my second child too, that I was like, okay, I can't, which is funny because mine were very close together in age and I was overwhelmed. And yet you start to think, okay, like this is it. I have to do this now. So right. After my second child that I started really taking writing seriously as well because yeah yeah life gets serious once you have kids you kind of realize oh yeah I'm I'm here (laughs) I'm doing this this is happening yeah and are these the choices I want to be making (laughs) exactly all the time so you're so, taking it seriously, but is it was sorry, was this your first novel? Please don't tell us this is your first yeah. novel. <laughs> no, I I go with this because it's No, so I I have a shelved novel that I do okay. hope to dust off and Okay, kind of rewrite basically almost from scratch kind of lessons learned because that was a process. <laughs> of learning. But, you know, I I definitely learned a lot writing that first book all about just the publishing period. And of course, I knew it was competitive. I don't think I understood or really still understand marketing very well. So that was a whole separate part of it. And yeah, so I worked on that book. I do hope to dust it off and redo it some at some point. And then I started night watching because I was in a point where that had gotten so many rejections. Mm-hmm. At that point, mm-hmm. yeah. and you know, it had it had gotten me into you know a mentorship program, wonderful men, gotten me some age and attention, and then it was just wall to wall form rejections on a full manuscript kind of thing. And so I started night watching at that point as I was just overwhelmed by this rejection because I thought, okay, well, if I'm going to do this, I need to try again. And I had this idea and went from there. So that's what I want to ask about the idea. What is the inciting incident of you writing Night Watching? Yeah, I mean, I I think that just the idea of a home invasion is such a primal and universal fear. I think it is 
incredible. I think all of us have that fear on some level, even if it's not sort of a primary worry or anything. You know, when my daughter was little, we moved out to kind of a rural-ish area here in New England, and we bought this big old house. And again, my husband's a doctor, so he's away a lot. You know, they're on call, they're overnights, they get called in. And it was, you know, very paranoia-inducing to be alone with small children overnight in this big, creaky old house where you can't see any neighbors. And so that got me thinking about it. And really just kind of poking at that idea because it scared me so much. I find that a lot of my ideas are kind of like excising demons (laughs) of my own (laughs) and worries of my own. And it kind of helps me kind of process those things. Yeah. And so that was the seed of of the ideas. Just I think it's a fear kind of everyone has, but that that move and and, you know, those overnights. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so now that we know how the idea was conceived, why don't you give us the elevator pitch for our listeners of Night Watching? Sure. Sure. So Night Watching is about a woman home alone at night with her two small children during a blizzard who realizes that someone has broken into her house. And even though she's about as far from an action hero as you can imagine, she has to figure out how to protect her little family as it becomes increasingly clear over the course of the night that this is no ordinary robbery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's hard to talk about because I don't want to spoil anything. Of course. We'll we'll get to spoilers later because I cannot let you go without talking about it. But just in your pitch, even you remind me that there no one in this novel has a name. Is that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. No one. No one has a name. Yeah. Which is very polarizing. (laughs) And it was funny because because of that setup, if you're a mother with your kids I was writing and I was a significant number of words in before I realized there was no natural way to introduce names at that point mm-hmm. because you're, you know, you're talking to your kids, you're whispering and, and yeah. the kids aren't calling the main character by her name. What kid yeah. is going to be like, you know, yeah. hey, Tracy, yeah. you know, yeah. Yeah. So there's no way to naturally introduce the mother's name in those early chapters. And I think, you know, when you're, I started noticing how often I use my kids' names versus terms of endearment, especially when they were really little. And it was a lot of terms of endearment, nicknames, like little diminutives. Rarely was it their, their full name. And when it's just the three, you know, in this situation. So I, I kind of was thinking, well, this weirdly works very well in these early chapters. And I really liked it for two reasons. One, because it makes it, as I said, it's a universal fear. So it could be anyone, right? And it implies that. easy to project ourselves. Correct. Project yourself. But also, it, she is a bit of an unreliable narrator as it goes on. And when you put a name on someone, they become that much more familiar. And I think to create this kind of distance of not having a name, it becomes that person in the news that you think, well, are they really telling the truth? You know what I mean? It it creates that emotional distance, even though you're in her head. And I really liked that sort of combination of 
it kind of almost like emotionally manipulating the reader yes. in that, you know, because an unreliable narrator, once you're in their head, you have their name. I think you're more likely to, you know, believe someone, give them the benefit of the doubt. But to keep that sort of emotional distance, I think, is effective. Yeah. Wow. And so, right, you think of it all the headlines like woman goes missing in so-and-so right. or a man murders you know they, it is they right. do keep that distance right husband arrested yes. <laughs> yes. we all know in law school criminal law you open and it's like june and joe had been married five years you're like oh what what is this oh this is murder she's in trouble so you're saying it kind of came out naturally that way but did you find it challenging to go through the whole novel and then even revision did you ever feel the impulse because even characters that come in don't have names yeah i mean so it's also it was it was kind of easy too right that the novel takes place during covid and if you were in a hospital at all during covid like everyone's covered if you were out in the world everyone's covered if you are in any situation it's like there's this anonymity to people And so that really added to, you know, just the ability to make everyone kind of anonymous. The harder things were the past and and her flashbacks, because then, you know, when she's thinking about present time and, and that sort of situation, it's kind of easy because everyone's a bit anonymized and the past was a little harder. That said, the cast is really tiny yes, in the book. Right. It's a yeah. very tiny cast and I, I, you know, it was not that difficult. The only times it was difficult was the use of she with the mother and daughter sometimes. Yes. And that was kind of the only time that I struggled a little bit, but people are really good with context cues, yeah. especially with, with dialogue and things, you know, you know, when it's the mother talking versus the daughter by the way that they talk, because one's an eight-year-old, you know, right. that kind of thing. This but is- yeah, it was, it was surprisingly not difficult. I think I, <laughs> I was kind of shocked how not difficult it, it was. Because you, I, I, I don't even know, I read this book the first time so quickly and I don't think I even registered the fact that they didn't yeah. have names, which is, I think, the uh, such a testament to how, what you were doing, like that that emotional manipulation. Because right. I, it mm-hmm. would never stood out to me. If it had stood out to me, I might have felt differently. But it is just part of the fabric of the story that's happening, mm-hmm. and that is. Huge. Yeah, and I think partially because it opens basically in the third act. And it is such action. It is such a small yes. cast. It, it wouldn't be natural for that everybody to be saying like, hello, Joe. You know, it just right. wouldn't be natural. Right. Yeah. So it works for this book. I <laughs> Will I do it again for another one? Probably not. <laughs> it was natural for this project. I don't know yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. It works yeah. very well. But Kate, someone does kind of have a, a name. Well, The Corner. Yeah. Oh, oh my boy. God. I, I mean, an absolute fright. I was telling you before, I was really terrorized in this novel. I, I felt very afraid. I That usually does not happen to me. And a big part of that was because of the corner, who is the antagonist. We're really getting almost into like horror territory with mm-hmm. him. So where did this idea for the, the creepy intruder come from? And, and how did you name him? Name, I'll say in quotes, the corner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I consume a lot of true crime, (laughs) 
Like I think a lot of both writers of scary stuff, thrillers and attorneys and just women especially yeah. do. Mm -hmm. I, I'm like the trifecta there of, of that <laughs> audience. I certainly struggle with with it because it's very strange, you know, as entertainment, but it means that there's this certain amount of, you know, knowledge you have about this type of evil person. And I wanted to, yeah, that was another good thing about not having names. I think there's definitely, you don't want to center <laughs> in a way the bad guy, mm -hmm. right? And one of my things with true crime is always, I wanted to hear from the targets of those crimes more than anyone else. And so that's the focus here. But he is definitely a type of criminal and a difficult one and very scary. Mm -hmm. And I think one thing about, you know, having worked in criminal justice is that you realize that evil does exist, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that is very difficult for people to accept. Mm -hmm. People want to believe that they will see someone and know they're bad. People want to believe that there, and this I think is why a lot of us consume true crime, frankly, we want to understand the origins, we want to unpack it in a way that, well, maybe we can prevent it or change it, but you know, sometimes it's too late. We want to think that bad things happen to bad people. And so it's, I wanted to create someone who, you know, was evil. And certainly, you know, the name, the corner itself, you know, I talk about sleep paralysis, in the book. And unfortunately, I have had a few episodes of sleep paralysis. Mm -hmm. And for me, like a lot of people, that the sort of shadow figure you see, if anyone doesn't know sleep paralysis, is when you feel like you're awake, you can't move. And often, most people, but not everyone, will see a figure in the room with you. And for me, for a lot of people, that figure comes out of a dark corner. Mm -hmm. And that image is terrifying for me, having gone through sleep paralysis. But I think for all of us, I mean, anyone who's been a child has looked in a dark corner and been afraid. And so that was the origin of that, that name. And the daughter names him the corner, the corner man, because of that fear of something looking and watching from, from a corner. I also, on the other side, I've, I've heard so many things about you know, there's always this idea, my stepdad is a, is a veteran, and he would go into a restaurant, and he would always take a corner seat. Mm -hmm. And he would always talk about the situational awareness of being aware and watching. And I started noticing that a lot of men specifically talk about that, even those who are not veterans, and yeah. do not have that, you know, trauma that has taught them those things. And they see it as kind of this like tough guy thing. I have situational awareness, situational awareness. I'm sitting in this corner. I'm, you know, it's almost watching everyone else. Yeah. So I liked that sort of aspect of it too, because I think, I, I think, frankly, that's a little ridiculous. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I've never, my father used to do that and my brother does that. And I've never thought about it from, yeah, why yeah. is it always yeah. the men? And I guess, like you're saying, Corinne, they think it's their, they can protect right. it and they, Correct. You know, Correct. they have to be in that position of power. 
Right, right. And and that's the sense. And I think it is, I know for my, my stepdad, it was, you know, part of his kind yeah. of training, which is very, very different. But I think it kind of is passed down as sort of this gendered knowledge in a way. Yeah. And I always thought that was sort of interesting to play with because so much of the book is about protection and what it means and situational awareness and what that means and how it is gendered. So yeah, I wanted to play with that a little bit too. Tracy, this book is a masterclass in suspense. And I mean, really, we, we say it often, but I was gripped by this book. <laughs> I really was. And my and all of the cliches are actually true for your book. Like my heart was in my throat. My stomach was in knots. All of it really was true. I can't wait till you teach some sort of masterclass. Please <laughs> sign me up. I want it. But I also wonder where, where you learned from. Uh, obviously, you've, you've already spoken about reading and being in love with these spooky stories from a very young age. But what about craft books? Was there anything that you read to, you know, help you with these techniques or uh, other than instinct and revision? Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah, no, I never took any, any classes. I have read craft books and they give me massive anxiety. (laughs) Such a hard time. Every time, even well-meaning writing advice, I stumble across on, you know, social media and things. I immediately start thinking I'm doing everything wrong. I have all these tags that I shouldn't have. Why is everyone looking and glancing? And, you know, you know what I mean? I I get really in my head about that a lot about craft things. And so I tend to, the only things that kind of speak to me are the very basic things. Mm -hmm. So just the the three act structure curve. You know, just the, this is the, you know, the start, the building tension, the climax and quick drop. And I do very much like the hero's journey, even though a lot of it is very esoteric. I do think it gives just sort of signposts along the way. And I don't obey it dogmatically in any way. I mean, there's no, you know, mentor that enters the picture in this book, for example. So I'm not, you know, following it to the letter because I definitely find I like having a guide and then breaking certain rules. I think it's very safe to say that, you know, every single craft book says, don't do flashbacks. People don't like flashbacks, which is somewhat true, I, I can tell you. But, you know, and also I start dead in the middle of the action. You don't even know who these characters are, right? The first line of the book is there was someone in the house. And in part, that was me being so irritated by the rejection of my first book because I knew it took too long to get started. So I was like, oh, you want to get started fast. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> Here we go. You know, and Yeah, but it's also that I think when you're writing, you have to lean in to what you enjoy. And I really like action sequences. I like writing those. So to start off with that, you know, really helped me get into the book itself. But overall, I think everyone has such a different process for writing and we're all chaotic in our own unique ways. I have to outline by hand, for example. I cannot do a screen. I write in word in the most simple way possible. Yeah, yeah. I, I I can't deal with all the sort of moving chapters around. It's just too many pieces for me. 
I, I write in a very linear way. I start at the start, I go to the middle, I finish at the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, but my personal chaos is that I write a paragraph, I go back, I revise the paragraph, I reread it, I revise it again. I, I, so I'm very, as I've learned, slow. <laughs> writing, which I didn't know until I sort of met other writers and how fast people are able to just, they they have a different sort of process of outlining, write the chapter, done, kind of, you know, maybe one revision, write a draft and be done. I mean, I by the time I've hit the end, the beginning is in final form because I've revised yeah. it so yeah, right. many well, times. Say, it's so. just is a shifting of probably your efforts because right. someone who just writes the thing is usually scared they won't finish it. So they just want right. to like get it and not look at it. Right. But then they have a lot of revision to do after right. that. So yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And I find too, I'm definitely someone who outlines and then as I write, things change. I come yeah. up generally with better ideas as I'm writing than I had when I was outlining. So, so you, that's, you can hold it loosely. Yeah. Yeah. I'm willing to change. If I get a better idea, like forget it. I'm yeah. going to use a better yeah. idea. Go with yeah. that. Chasing that one. Exactly. So we're always interested with debut authors of sort of the getting the agent, the submission Mm. process, all of that. You've mentioned that you wrote one, that Mm -hmm. that, uh, the one that lives in the drawer and you had some rejection (laughs) there. So where in this process did you get an agent? Did you get an agent with that first one? It sounds like yes. No, no, I did not get agent. The rejections were from the agent. Oh, the rejections were all from the agents. Oh, yeah. Like a hundred of them. (laughs) Yeah. So, <laughs> so then how did you get, those, yeah, how you got your agent this time around? Yeah. So I wrapped up a revision basically of this book because I had been busy submitting the other one and um, revising the other one through that mentorship program. And then when it just, the rejection started rolling in kind of for my own mental health, I refocused on this draft. I had started here, revised it. And sent it out to pretty few agents. And it was a a different group. I had learned a lot by the rejections about people who respond, people who don't, what agencies are legitimate, what aren't, all of that. So I kind of got to skip that that learning curve for night watching because I already had it for the rejections on my other book. It was also a bit of a different crew because my first book skewed more horror. And this, I thought, skewed more thriller. And so it was a little bit of a different group and, frankly, a, a broader group. I think there are a lot more people who represent thriller than than horror, yeah. So, which was nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I sent the book out to maybe, you know, 10 agents. And one of them, I sent it out at 4 p.m., and I got a call the next morning. <laughs> so I was walking my kids down to get the bus mm-hmm. at like eight in the morning. I got a voicemail because my ringer was still off from my now agent, Helen, and got on the phone with her the second my kids were on that school bus because <laughs> I was very excited. And I knew one of her clients via this mentorship program I had been in whose book this Helen had just sold. So I knew she was legit. I knew that my friend really liked her. That was incredibly helpful. And so got on the phone with Helen. She told me she loved the book. She had some ideas for it she wanted to discuss with me. 
she was ready to sign then and there, right? And this was very disorienting because we're talking about a year of uh, like a hundred rejections. And then I hit send on an email to 10 and I got a call from Helen like hours later. Did you even read the book? I've since learned that she is the fastest reader I've ever met in my life. I don't know. I'm a fast reader. No, not, not compared to her. So, and, and she was ready to sign. And of course I was saying, well, you know, I sent it to these other agents. Can you give me weeks and whatever? And she's like, well, you know, I don't really do beauty contests. You said, you know, a client of mine, why don't you chat with her? And so I chatted with my friend. She said, oh yeah, Helen, Helen feels like when she wants to sign someone, she knows she wants to sign someone. She does not like how other agents kind of piggyback, you know, off, off of that. And she is a very, and as a lawyer, I was very impressed by these negotiation skills. Okay. So I'm (laughs) sitting there and I'm like, I like that. I'm impressed that she kind of gave this deadline, you know, because I didn't have the worry that it was some sort of scam. I mean, the woman represents Sherry LePayne, you know, (laughs) she represented the kite runner. She's a legit person. And so I was just very impressed by these negotiation skills and was kind of like, if she brings this energy to selling my book, yes, fantastic. She's going to be an amazing advocate. Mm -hmm. So even though, you know, initially I was sort of like, oh, well, this is not what they say on the internet you're supposed to do. Very quickly, I said, yeah, done and signed with her. And that was, that was that. And I really have not looked back. She's been absolutely amazing. And there is something incredibly special about going through that kind of rejection and then finding somebody who just mm-hmm. believes in you that quickly. Yeah. I mean, it was a dream come true, frankly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I do love that you, it is special, but I do love that the first word you used was disorienting because I had a very yes. similar situation <laughs> and I was freaking out. And everyone's like, wait, I don't understand. You're freaking yeah. out because mm-hmm. somebody wants to represent you right. so quickly, so amazingly, right. so fervently. And I'm like, yeah. whoa, what's like, yeah. 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 So tell us then after that, did you do a revision with her? And, yes, and when I did. did you land with Pamela Dorman? How did that happen? Yeah, I did a revision with Helen. And one thing I didn't know when I signed with her, but I really appreciate is that she has really great ideas, but does not micromanage. You know what I mean? So she'll say, she'll kind of, you know, spitball with me as I'm I'm saying X or Y, or I think we should go this direction. Or she is saying the only thing I thought was weak was A, B, or C. And we'll sort of discuss and she'll come up with something. And then I'll say, oh, what if we take that and do this with it? It's just really nice having someone who knows the book intimately to discuss big picture issues with. It's very different even than sort of early readers who tend to focus a lot less on that. I think that's a skill to focus on these big picture issues. So I did a revision with her that made the book a lot better. I liked it a lot more after (laughs) working with her and she was very enthusiastic about the revision as well. And we went out on submission in late May of, oh my gosh, 2022. 
And it was really interesting to see the reaction because I would say about a week in, I got a, my first offer was from Germany. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So she had already heard from a couple U.S. editors saying, mm, it's pretty dark. I don't know. Germany was all in, you know. Yeah. <laughs> we love like, dark. Give it to us. <laughs> give it to yes. us. We love it. More darkness. You know, yeah. it was just very culturally appropriate. I yeah. kind of yeah. had a chuckle. Of course, that was contingent on an English language version yeah, happening. Right. Mm-hmm. So all very nice, but still need an English language version. And she shopped it around. And I think the thing that editors struggled with was that it was so scary (laughs) to them. And some of them, I think, said, I don't know if I want to live in this space for, you know, a year, two years, which fair enough. I, (laughs) I understand. I did that. It's not the easiest. And so some I'm of like, them weren't oh, so but sure. But you already about that. live in that space. Yeah. This is what it's like to be a woman. Yeah, pretty much. What it's like to mm-hmm. be a mother. Of yeah, yeah, exactly. Anyway, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. So that I think took a minute. Then we got an offer in the UK from Penguin. And it was, it was an okay offer, but I just wasn't sure about it. You know, they sent sort of a letter and it, I, yeah, I just didn't think. They kept mentioning the word horror, and I think that the book has sort of horror elements, but I didn't want it to be marketed as horror. It's not paranormal. It's It's very much about human monsters. Yeah, you know, so that kind of made me nervous. And while we were sort of noodling on that, we got a joint offer, which I think is unusual, from Penguin UK and Pam Dorman Books, which is, of course, a division of Penguin Random House and Viking in the U.S. And these two imprints across the pond work together a lot. They do Ashley Audrain together, Richard Osman, all, a range of books, but a lot in common. And it's because a lot of editors there like to work together on edits and things. And I really love that idea. They gave me sort of a package preempt, best and final offer of the two together. And that was great. And we, we went with that. And I, I absolutely loved the editorial input because it was amazing. I had two editors. I had a British editor and an American editor simultaneously giving me an edit letter. And even them kind of debating certain things within the draft. And mm-hmm. I, I loved it. I thought, you know, it was, it was a really lucky place to be in to have these two super talented editors with different perspectives both weighing yeah. in it was great uh, wow i would think that could be overwhelming getting it from two it sounds yeah they did a pretty getting it from one but yeah they, they did a pretty them. good job with the letter working together okay. on the letter so that yeah. was the main focus but even within the comments like there's certain americanisms yeah. i use for example that you know the U.S. editor would be explaining to the British editor sort of in the comments, that kind of thing, and certain things. Well, do you think this is clear enough? Oh, I think it's clear enough. I'm not sure. Maybe we clarify this this sort of conversation. But I really enjoyed that, for sure. I enjoyed that. So you've now, having been through this process, like, is there best advice you received or lessons you learned on on this path? Yeah, I mean, publication, especially like, yeah, okay, the book is the book, you know how to write, you know how to edit you. But now you have to get the book out into the world. Yeah, Yeah. 
I feel like it's I'm not still, easy. Not I easy. feel like I still don't know anything about that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the, the whole marketing piece of things and it's very difficult. I think it's not natural for most writers. Let's put it that way. Yeah. I think it is, my book lends itself very, very well to sort of an elevator pitch, but then you can't discuss anything beyond that, which is very difficult. I think I still don't understand why people buy books, right? I, I mean, I've always been such a huge reader that I read voraciously. And I know that that's not everyone. So I, I'm i always sort of fascinated by yeah. how people buy books, who reads. Yeah, if, and If you're going to buy five books this year, how are you choosing those five I mean, books? I could never <laughs> limit myself. Yeah. You know, I don't know. Way, but yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. So I'm so, definitely still learning. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> good to know. Yeah. That's good to know. Yeah. I, we want to talk about some spoilers after, but we have to end this section with our favorite question, which I'm already interested to hear your, about astrology. <laughs> what, what is your sign and do you relate to it? Yeah, I'm a Capricorn oh, and wow. my personality disturbingly matches the description of Capricorn. Yeah, yeah you know, yeah, yeah. big cheapskate. Oh, no, we, we care about money. Yeah, care oh, about money is yeah. important. It is, and yeah. it's, I've, I only I'm buy appreciating mood. assets. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My husband buys a bike. I'm like, what are you doing? Yeah. Oh, this not a good investment. No, it's not a good investment. <laughs> That's right, I love it. I Pay down part it. of the mortgage, come on. I yeah. was getting earth sign a lot from you and I was between Taurus and Capricorn. I might've gone Taurus, but Capricorn. Yeah. Is. Yeah. So yeah. the catch 22 is that I don't really believe in astrology despite yeah. it matching my personality so perfectly, but also recognize mm -hmm. that's a Capricorn kind of a trait. Yeah. yeah. That's <laughs> exactly right. Mm -hmm. The that's catch 22. Right. That's right. That's right. The yeah. hard worker though, this, this, this tracks, this tracks. Oh, absolutely. The hard worker, the practical, the, yeah. you know, I'm practical. convinced yeah. that's why I went to law school. Like it's not practical to, I always was a reader and wanted yeah. to be a writer and would have loved to publish a book, but that's not a practical life plan so my yeah. practical life plan was law and yeah. then we'll see what happens mm -hmm. after that yeah that was very much me as well for yeah. sure all right well we're <laughs> gonna wrap up this section then and we I like I said cannot let you leave there are not only is it easy to walk into spoilers but also there are things I really want to ask you about and how this came up to be so if you haven't finished the book if you're just getting it today turn this off come back and we'll talk about some of the stuff that happens later in the book. 